What is doubt? I often talk about um, the experience of doubt being the sort of uh, final fixation often before a significant shift in identity, before awakening. And we don't recognize doubt as such until we do in, in that setting because we are so identified with it. It doesn't feel like doubt or a collection of thoughts. It feels like me. It feels like um, the problem of being me, the problem of being alive in this world or in this body or in this life. And the problem is assumed that there is a problem. And it's so assumed that we don't even recognize it as such. It feels like us, the problem of us, the problem of me. So instead of noticing that, we're already a couple steps down the road and we're looking for solutions. We find ourselves looking for solutions in life. And we look for those solutions in micro uh, ways and macro ways. We look for it. Uh, we look for solutions in, in moments. The solution of how I feel right now and what to do about it, how to make myself feel better. And we look for it in broad brushstrokes in life, the way we plan our lives out and the way we imagine those plans will finally um, make us feel better, make us feel satisfied, make us feel okay, finally. And of course, there's no problem with making plans, but it gets co-opted pretty quickly with the signature of doubt, of seeking, of not enough, not good enough, not okay. And then we project the possibility of being okay, finally feeling okay, being completed uh, onto the plan or onto the imagined outcome of our actions or of life. We do this at all stages of life, starting in childhood. In childhood, it's often in very simple ways. When I get to do the fun thing, when I get the next toy, um, when I get to see you know, my parents next, whatever it is. Uh, and as we get older, we project that into the future in more complex ways. And then we start to anticipate life stages, turning 16, turning 18, turning 21, going to college, finishing college, meeting somebody that I finally connect with, then getting married, these are all things we just keep projecting into the future and hoping will make us happy. Not really always fully admitting to ourselves when they don't fully make us happy or they make us happy for a short time, followed by a kind of disappointment, you know, having children. And then we start doing it to our, we start teaching it to our children and we project it onto their lives when our children hit the life stages and so forth. Um, and as I said, there's nothing wrong with making plans and goals and enjoying life stages and all, but 
probably anyone here understands what I mean when I say that the co-opting is what makes it so uncomfortable. The co-opting of the mind, the um, using all of it uh, in a in a way that's projected outward uh, onto the palette or the screen of the, of our sort of egoic mind as a carrot. That's something we're going to endlessly seek. And we, if we, if we're sensitive to this, we realize it's 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 not just a little uncomfortable. It's rather uncomfortable actually to live in that world of later when. Uh, and what we often don't notice as we're growing up, we really generally don't notice as we're growing up, sometimes in retrospect, but that that's happening sometimes, but also a lot of the times there's, there's much more of an experience of presence in young childhood. And as we get older, it's less common, but as we get into young adulthood, often the feeling of presence starts to just not be there. We, we don't, we can't find it. We can't find the, the, the experience of awe, of wonder, of magic, of simplicity, of ease of just feeling naturally okay being alive requiring nothing that that starts to become pretty um, absent for most people or for many people as we kind of grow into young adulthood and again all of this feels <clears throat> until we really get in touch with our own suffering all of this feels so normal because it is socially reinforced because we talk amongst each other in ways that suggest that all of this is totally normal. Like we're all fine. Everyone's fine, right? We're all, we're all good. Um, we even emphasize those, those seeking, uh, surrogates. We emphasize those through our conversation, through competitive discussions about what we have and what we're going to get and so forth. And then through social media, right? So it's all very reinforced. So, um, until we really get in touch with our suffering, we don't, this doesn't sound, just, none of this feels abnormal, really. It feels normal. Uncomfortable, if we're paying attention, but normal, rather normal, and, and again, socially endorsed. Uh, so the doubt, it's kind of where I started with doubt. The doubt is like a few layers down. It's not always obvious right away. Um, because there's layers of inauthenticity, then there's underneath that layers of more authentic discomfort and maybe dis-ease or dysphoria that we're not even admitting to ourselves, or some emotion we're not in touch with. And below all of that is this sense of, of just a fundamental doubt about myself, right? The, the sense that I'm not okay or that life is not okay or there's something really wrong that needs to be fixed or addressed. Just the feeling of that is buried, but it's there. And... <clears throat> I think in one way of speaking, as we start to uh, dig in to identity, dig into uh, our thoughts and beliefs, start to inquire, we start to get at those layers of inauthenticity and so forth. Um, we've, we're, what's revealed are more um, fundamental layers of processing. Uh, these networks of beliefs are kind of laced together such that we process very quickly and overlook many of them. But as we slow down, as we slow down the processing, slow down the mind, start to look at one thought at a time, one belief at a time, we get to these more fundamental beliefs, these like hidden um, beliefs that are supporting other more superficial beliefs. And I think it's really important to do this. You know, 
And I could kind of be binary about it and say it happens in one of two ways. We either do it very intentionally and who knows why we're, we'd be crazy enough to do that, take on this, this process, um, start digging in and, and just really go. It's like really going against the current, the social current in a way. It doesn't make a lot of sense to stop, you know, slow the mind down, start looking at what do I actually believe and why? Why am I buying into this story I'm telling myself that everyone else is telling themselves and me? Why? Is it true? You know, digging in. Um, it can be challenging, of course, as everyone knows. But it does pay. You know, it pays off after some time and some vigilance. The other way is uh, one you don't choose. It's disruption, tragedy. Life just does a reset, however that happens for you. Sometimes it happens through loss of someone you love, um, health challenges or crises, major disruptions in, in the way you li you're living, however that comes about, whether it's through profession or environment or war, can be all kinds of things. So disruptions are often a, a, a more automatic way of clearing out all of the BS the illusions of, um, oh, everything's fine. I'm fine. Everything, you know, family's good. Everyone's good. Everything, everything's fine. You know, sometimes that just, you just can't have that anymore when, when there's a major disruption and it's like, okay, now you have to face the more fundamental, um, perceptions about identity, about yourself and about the world. And that'll feel like fear, grief, anger, resistance, all of it. That's, that's what you're going to find with disruption. Um, and of course it can be challenging. And at the same time, it's such an opportunity, uh, to confront and question and ultimately release any remaining beliefs about the way you think the world should be. And that by the world being the way you think it should be, um, you're, you're okay, or you're happy or fulfilled or satisfied. If there's a fundamental delusion, that's it. That, uh, the world being the way I think it should be in any given situation, reality being the way I think it should be my life, my, the people around me, the situations around me, they should be the way I think they should be or they should be the way I can imagine they could be. That's the fundamental delusion, really. Um, the sense of separation, the sense of a separate self, all of it really hinges on that. Because underneath it all, what we find is this illusion of control created by thought, created by the mind saying, oh, I, but I can imagine it could be this way. I can imagine the past. If the past was different, then this would be different, and right on and on. This can go on forever, um, and for many people, it does go on for their entire life. Imagining things are the way they're they're not. Um, but with with enough disruption, we confront that directly. That it doesn't. No amount of thinking about anything is going to change what's right in front of our face. And with enough disruption, we have to deal with what's right in front of our face. We have to do it to survive, to make responsible choices and all of it. And that really helps. Like we have to actually engage the truth right in front of us. 
and it helps us to um, let go of the illusion that we can it can be other than it is. It also helps us feel what we need to feel. Grief, loss, letting go, frustration, anger. Um, and interestingly, those emotions aren't, aren't caused by things going a certain way. They're caused by things going a way that proves to us that we can't imagine, that, that we can't have it a different way. That's where, that's where, the, that's where they're released. Um, they're caused actually probably the repression of those emotions is probably caused by years of thinking that way. But the release that brings all those emotions into consciousness is disruption. It's life just showing us like, this is how it is. And even that is really impersonal. It's not like life is doing it on purpose or something. It's just the natural way of things. And much of it has to do with letting go of ourselves, of our family members, of our loved ones, of youth, of wealth, of control, of illusions, of on and on and on. It's so much letting go here. Um, until the fundamental illusion that we should be able to hold on or that we can hold on or there's anything apart that, that could hold on until that's dispelled. And when that's dispelled, it is different. You know, gain and loss really are assimilated. Birth and death really are seen as one. The, the flow of life with all of its, you know, splendor and tragedy and so forth, it's very natural. So we confront the the doubt that's tied directly to control in the way I just described. To the degree that we want to control or we believe we can control, we're avoiding seeing clearly the doubt about ourself, about our place in the world, our position. They're tied directly together. So how to go beyond the doubt or how to dispel the doubt. I think it happens in steps or depends on the, the sort of um, degree of realization perhaps. But initially with this initial shift I talk about frequently, uh, it can be as simple as seeing, clearly seeing that doubt is a thought. It's a belief. And, and the doubt, interestingly, when this comes to a head with the one-pointed approach or with coming right up to the edge with awakening the very <laughs> strange actually and paradoxical truth that's revealed is the the mere doubt that i am not awake may be the final obstruction or the mere doubt that 
you know, the peace of awakeness is somehow eluding me. And seeing that's a thought, ultimately. I mean, who are you without the, the belief that I'm not worthy of peace? I'm not worthy of being fully awake. I'm not worthy of letting go to the degree that the awake nature of everything is simply and naturally revealed in all times and places. There's only one way to find out. Let go of the doubt. Let go of the thought. Let go of the clinging to the thought that says, I don't know if I can do this, or I don't know if this is for me, or I might go crazy. I might not be a good parent anymore. I might lose everything. These thoughts at this, at this level, um, you know, for me, they started to, to, they really started to be so conspicuous. They started to feel like a, like a hostage taker, like something's there to try to take me hostage. And I could see right through it. It's just nothing. There's nothing there. And yet, why was I reacting to it? Why was I believing that thought? Why was it taking my attention hostage in those moments? Maybe it was a rebellious streak in me. I don't know. It felt sort of rebellious at one point. Um, because we all have the discernment to see a thought as a thought. Then why do we react to certain thoughts? Why do we believe certain thoughts? Well, we believe them to the degree we are identified with them or they feel like me. And as I mentioned before, with all these layers of identity piled on top, it can be hard to actually see that, oh, doubt is actually a thought that feels like me. But it's not me. It's definitely not me. This is like the netty netty approach, right? Not me, not me. The thought isn't me. The sound isn't me. The body isn't me. You know? A momentary experience of any kind isn't me because it comes and goes and whatever I'm experiencing as me seems to still be here. So that's one way of disidentifying. There are a lot of ways. But to disidentify from doubt is really quite a beautiful thing because you're disidentifying from a story that you believe in, in which you're sometimes the hero, but you're often the victim of the story. And it can be hard to put all that together and see it as one whole experience, but it is. It's one whole mechanism. So the striving and the pushing and the struggling to make the world look the way you think it should look, it doesn't do anything, but it it's convincing in the story. And then we feel so lost when that's not happening, when no matter how much control we seem to exert, how much wanting we seem to exert or whatever, uh, when we really see like, oh, that doesn't actually do anything at all, then we can, it can be uncomfortable. We can like overlook it, right? We can push that aside and focus more when we're the hero of our own story. But again, if the disruption's big enough, there's no option anymore. Or if you see clearly enough, if you see closely enough, there's no option anymore. So you don't have to have tragedy in your life to wake up. All of us are going to have tragedy in one form or another, or at least maybe we would not call it tragedy at some point, but a disruption uh, in expectations, like that's going to happen to everyone. 
But that's not required to wake up. What's required to wake up is clear seeing, however that happens. And it can definitely happen through intention, through work, through slowing down the mind, seeing what's actually happening, looking for what you think what you have assumed has been there the whole time, looking for it. If you assume there's a suffering self, fine, look for it. Where, where are you going to look for that? Then look and keep looking until something becomes clear. Or if you think uh, there's definitely someone in here that's in control, something or someone in here that's in control. Because I think about control all the time. I think about doership and all. Okay, come back and look for it. Look for what it is, where it is, that the mechanism of control is originating from. Just look. Get curious. What do you actually see? What do you actually find? 